Welcome back, listeners. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecosiv.org. For today's episode, Philip Clayton speaks with Devin Hartman, who focuses full-time on fighting global warming in the building sector, which is the largest contributor to greenhouse gas proliferation on Earth. Now retired from his 35-year role as president and CEO of Hartman Baldwin Design Build Incorporated, a full-service architecture and construction company, Devin has created CHIRP, the Community Home Energy Retrofit Project, which is a nonprofit social enterprise that assists counties and cities in creating a roadmap to citywide net-zero energy use. CHIRP educates city councils, community organizations, homeowners, contractors, manufacturers, and realtors in the power and benefits of energy efficiency and creates replicable, scalable initiatives that promote massive reduction of greenhouse gases, local economic growth, job creation, and environmental justice. Currently, in a strategic partnership between the California cities of Pomona and Claremont, he is launching CHIRP's capstone project, Locally Grown Power, which is the first nonprofit solar panel assembly factory in the world designed to be replicable in cities throughout California and beyond. Philip talks with Devin about his work with CHIRP and locally grown power, how the concept of ecological civilization inspires his work, why he focuses on local transformation, and what gives him hope. And now, here's Devin and Philip. Hello and welcome to the Ecosiv podcast. This is Philip Clayton. I'm the president of the Institute for Ecological Civilization. And it's a particular pleasure to have on the show today my friend and colleague and in many ways inspiration, Mr. Devin Hartman. Devin is the co-founder of Hartman Baldwin Design Build. This is a, a design build firm that has offices in Claremont here and throughout Southern California. He founded it some and worked with the organization for some 35 years before retiring from Hartman Baldwin and turning his time full-time to the sort of environmental projects that we'll be discussing on today's podcast. The title of this initiative, which uh, has begun here in the Claremont-Pomona area and will be expanding, we think, across California and perhaps across the United States, the title is Chirp, Locally Grown Power. So what we'll want to do is to look in some detail at a local project, which has the capacity to um, be replicated in cities throughout the United States and in different forms, perhaps, around the world. Welcome to the show, Devin. Thank you very much, Philip. It's great to be here with you. Can I begin simply by asking you bluntly, is this term that we use, ecological civilization, one that's comfortable for you to use, uh, or is it one that you're queasy about? And if it's a term that, that helps you describe your own vision, can you just give it the meaning that it has for you, or the inspiration, the guidance, the content that it has for you as a businessman and an entrepreneur? The concept of ecological civilization is inspiring to me. It's inspiring, number one, because it originates with our friend and mentor, John Cobb, 
and uh, carries the weight of all of his work uh, for the last 50 years um, in thinking um, on this subject very deeply. Uh, but also for me, it represents a meaningful kind of poetic uh, transition from uh, our achieving uh, industrial civilization and realizing all of the wonders and the horrors that we have brought upon ourselves in that particular civilization effort. The term ecological civilization represents for me a, a meaningful and poetic metaphor to break ties with our concept of industrializing and uh, brings to mind aspirational goals of what would it be like to create a civilization that is ecological in orientation. I think we've progressed to the point in our culture, even over the last 10 years, where the normal person on the street viscerally understands the, the problem that we have wrought upon ourselves by overuse of the natural and even really in some senses economic resources uh, of the planet and an ecological reorientation toward those processes and those resources and even our relationships themselves uh, down to our relationships with our local economy and our local cities. If it were more ecologically oriented, I think it gives us a, um, a metaphor for how we can address the future. What's been powerful in your own work is that you have this very clear and broad vision, but the things you've done have always been for transformation starting at the local level. Does that come perhaps from having been involved in designing and building properties for so many decades? What is it that gives you such clear focus on local transformation that a lot of people in the environmental movement don't have so sharply? Well, for 35 years, uh, I've spent time in um, literally thousands of households and thousands of businesses in thousands of conversations with individual people about how to uh, essentially make their lives better through design and by design. At, at the base, for me, the practice of architecture and construction was to envision a better way of interacting with your environment. And I saw many opportunities for families and people to improve the quality of their lives by stepping back and taking a moment to rethink the design of how they interacted with their environment. The weather and the aesthetics and the space and even themselves, because the way you create a floor plan or a structure can be a reflection of the highest aspirations of that family or that individual. And then in actuality, the energy that you put into that structure, if it's well thought through and well designed with care um, and craftsmanship, that structure then will feed back that same energy a thousand fold over the next several decades. So it's an energy in, energy out sort of proposition. But what that did over the 35 years was place me squarely at the, the, the first principle of uh, individuals reacting with each other 
and taking time to care for each other and envision a, a better quality of life. And so I, I think I became, at the end of 35 years of thousands of conversations, I got a little bit better at helping people think through the design of their life, creating vocabulary for that, and then coming to a deep understanding that it's really at the individual level that we need to make profound change. And then we can link together those individuals with a new idea of design and a new hope and aspiration uh, for quality of life that we can really make change on, a, on an entire city level. So after 35 years, I kind of lifted my head up and looked around and realized that uh, our company had succeeded in uh, changing the visual uh, beauty uh, of an entire city and several cities and several people's lives. So when I retired after learning about the outsized role of the building sector in the proliferation of greenhouse gases on the planet, I decided to focus my, my energies 100% in uh, mitigating greenhouse gases in the building sector at the city and at the county level. And I never had any thought other than starting with individual conversations uh, and then group conversations at the local level. Uh, I felt like everything else outside of that or to start at, at a county level um, or at a state level or even a policy level for me was not going to be able to affect the, the radical transformative changes that we were after. So the, in the term of our organization, the Community Home Energy Retrofit Project, the focus on community and home starting at the, at the smallest level was very meaningful to me. And it was from there that we thought we would, we would build our vision. I've always wanted to ask you the, the more personal question. Was there a change inside you over the years in the building industry that led to the growing centrality of, of that environmental vision? It's not every very successful businessman who retires at the height of his career to try entrepreneurial work in, in the environmental sector. Uh, and I, I can't, I've never been bold enough to ask you this in private, and now I'm asking you on an international podcast, but was there, a, was there a change in priorities or there must have been something inside you that, that was a part of this bold shift in your career? No, it's a great question. And um, there was uh, actually a specific moment in time and back in the early 2000s, there was a kind of a growing awareness of ecological disaster that was, um, that was brewing. There was a, an organization called the Rocky Mountain Institute that formed. And uh, I had been following some of their very early newsletters about the problems with our environment. And since building is so intricately tied to the environment, one of the things I loved about building was having to consider things like weather and orientation and elevation and materials and all of these things that are intimately involved with an understanding of uh, the physics of nature um, and our interaction with that. Right about that time, uh, in 2003, um, there was a lead article in a magazine uh, called Metropolis Magazine. And the cover article um, by an architect named Ed, Ed Mazaria was titled, Architects Pollute. And <laughs> 
this captured my attention because up to this point, I had been kind of following the environmental movement as a, uh, as a kind of a passive observer and bystander. And kind of watching the, the tangential interactions with the embodied energy and other sorts of material use in construction. But never had I had the finger pointed directly at me and my company and my profession as that article did. And essentially the, the premise of the article was that buildings in the world use more fossil fuels than any other sector on wow, the, I did not know that. On the planet. Buildings are the number one. The number, the number one use of fossil fuels and creator of greenhouse gases, and that's both through um, operations of keeping the lights on and the heating and air conditioning uh, operating, but also the embodied materials used in things like concrete, one of the most energy intensive processes on the planet. The reason for this really is just the number of buildings. There are 130 million residences, not even including the industrial and office and governmental buildings in the United States. So when you look at shots at nighttime of New York City, it, it becomes kind of, kind of obvious uh, once you start thinking about it. But up to this point, nobody in the, um, you know, the International Energy Agency had broken out buildings as one of the categories to track energy use. Now, they'd always thought about transportation, obviously, and uh, factories, for example, and different kinds of buildings, but never grouped all of them together at once. And at that point, it became glaringly obvious that buildings were a shockingly grotesque culprit in proliferation of greenhouse gases. And so that article shocked me and dismayed me, quite frankly. Uh, it set me back because when I read through this article, I realized that I, at that point I had been in the industry for you know over 25 years. And our company was known for very high design, very high quality, very high durability, very high craftsmanship, very high uh, resale value, very high quality of life given back to our clients. But we never, as part of the design process, had considered energy use. So in looking back, I realized that we had left a legacy of high pollution. They are, they are continuing to pollute every year by their outsized use of energy. And it was right about this time that one of my employees actually had taken a course in building science, this burgeoning field of taking a look at buildings as an energy system. And basically, how to turn a building that we had created that functions more like a cardboard box into creating buildings that function more like a thermos. So that on a hot day, the cold air that you put into this building stays in the building. And so if you created a building that resembles a thermos in its uh, operating pro uh, properties, then all of a sudden, magically, you can downsize dramatically the compressor and the heating and air conditioning and cooling equipment that's required for that building to keep it cool. 
And so not only then do you dramatically reduce energy use, but you also dramatically increase occupant comfort and also, surprisingly, indoor air quality. So what I see is the beginning of this transition from design-build, the centrality of the ecological principle, a new approach to design-build, and now I'd like to jump right up to the present. Um, you've just received a major grant from the state of California, and you have an idea that California is convinced, business community is convinced, people in your field are convinced, can be replicated. And what I'd like to do is, can you describe this idea in its most general form so that our listeners in Europe and Africa and South America and Asia can say, oh, I can see how with the appropriate details changed, we could do something similar to that here. Okay. What is this core idea that you've created such attention about and such an amazing start in implementing? So I think maybe getting back to your first question about the idea or the aspiration of ecological civilization, we all know the story that we have a very short timeline uh, to work ourselves out of the results of this industrial revolution and our industrial focus on civilization. In terms of thinking about an ecological civilization, it is, we, we cannot get ourselves out of where we've gotten ourselves into without transformational thinking. We can't keep doing the same thing over and over. One of the things we have been doing is we've been focusing on allowing parallel pathing in solving facets of the problem in isolation, one from the other. So for example, we've, we have technology that's rolling on, um, in, on one track. Uh, we have ideas of um, economic revival rolling on on another. We have uh, ideas of job creation on another track. Uh, we have ideas of how to address environmental injustice issues on another track. So in order to honor this idea of ecological civilization and to inspire ourselves to think uh, better and to think more holistically and more strategically, and to make a break with this kind of extractive capitalism that we have known and it's brought us to this point now, we've decided that we will combine all of these into one initiative. We'll, we'll combine a new patented technology around renewable energy. We'll combine the idea of being with that with a nonprofit business model that is focused on bringing back middle-class manufacturing jobs and regenerating local economies that have been gutted with supply-side economics and the hope that trickle-down economics would work. Then we will also, we will take all of those efforts and finally wrap in the idea of focusing on solving the environmental injustice issues that we have also created over the last 40 years because, in fact, we cannot reach our GHG mitigation goals if we do not address the lowest 60% of our population. It's impossible. We cannot address this massive greenhouse gas mitigation goal without including 
at least 80 to 90 percent of our population. So it gets back to uh, community engagement, community organizing as first principle, local engagement, local stimulus as, as an economic principle, and using technology and uh, renewable energy to help create all of those opportunities. So let's see if I, if I have the picture right, and you correct me where I get it wrong. The project involves building um, a factory for middle-class, lower-middle-class workers in the community or near the community, which would do this, the patented change to solar panels, which um, greatly increases their efficiency and longevity. They'll be available to be installed on, on the rooftops of residences in middle or lower-middle-class neighborhoods, making with some economic way that makes it feasible for them. So they have a gain as homes. The community has a gain through the employment. It has a gain through improving standards of living for people who are in this 60%. And it, it's part of regenerating the economy of, in this case, American towns like Claremont and Pomona in a way that keeps the profits and the community and the jobs and the values all together in the community rather than exporting them outward. And this whole idea then can be expanded as it's successful here into other similar communities. How did I do? Beautiful. Thank you. Very well said. I would just put a kind of an emotional top on what you said, and that is to let everybody know that the inventor of this technology, Kent Kernahan, actually invented this deployment economic model and the technological innovation at the same time to serve this purpose. He woke up in the middle of the recession in 2010 and realized that all of his 54 patents to date at that point were being monetized overseas in this chase for cheap capital. All of the IP in this country generally gets sold to venture capital and then they, they take that IP and they monetize it where labor is cheap helping to gut our local economies over the last 40 to 50 years. He decided that there's an inventor class in the United States. Very few people have over 50 patents. Kent now has over 74 patents to his name. This has happened just in the last 10 years. And he decided that as an inventor class, there's only uh, less than 400 people in the country that have uh, over 30 patents to their name, 30, 40 patents to their name. So. This particular class of people in the United States have an outsized lever to pull in terms of their effect on the local economy and the health and uh, aspirations of our country. So he wrote a monograph called um, The Great Recession, My Fault in 2010 and set off to uh, correct that. And so uh, he has uh, developed a world-class technology that solves a fundamental flaw, Achilles heel, in current solar technology, and married that with this deployment model to regenerate local economies. And then there's a final key here, and that is uh, the, the, the economic powerhouse of this, is that it's actually a requirement of the model that we focus on the lowest income households first. And that's not just a moral imperative, but uh, if you if you take our first prototype uh, model, our economic uh, extrapolation of 6,000 households, our, our, our first 
phase will be to deploy 6,000 systems on 6,000 low-income households. That will save those 6,000 households $80 a month. $80 a month times 12 will save those 6,000 households $6.5 million a year, every year for the next 40 years. That $6.5 million a year will get redirected from the utilities directly back into the local economy because at the lowest household income level, those households have never achieved their essential spending needs. They're living from paycheck to paycheck. So they have what's called a, a high marginal propensity to consume both locally and immediately. Much more than the highest income or the middle income households who tend to save that $80 a month or invest it outside of a local economy. So if we really want to stimulate the local economy and address a moral negative in our culture, then we will focus on the lowest income households and our most negatively environmentally impacted neighborhoods first. That makes a lot of sense. I'm glad you went into that particular detail because I don't think I could see until you said that how the solar technology, the low cost, high efficiency, and the need for it to be in those who have this, the catch up need, who will spend locally, why those are really two parts of a single genius idea. Yes, it's a very holistic play and it addresses directly the top four priorities of the state of California, which are GHG mitigation, local job creation, local economic stimulus, and environmental justice. So this is the beauty, the beauty of living in California right now, is that we live in an extremely rich legislative environment around the environment and around environmental justice issues. Because the state of California realizes that we basically have two economies in the state. We have a coastal economy and we have the inland economy, stretching from essentially Fresno, Bakersfield, down through um, Riverside and San Bernardino counties. And those two Californias are split by not only income disparity, but also environmental disparity. So the state of California is deadly serious about addressing environmental justice issues to the tune of stacking up billions of dollars to address that and legislation that requires those billions of dollars to get spent on addressing those issues, both uh, climate mitigation and environmental justice. So uh, we live in a wonderful legislative bubble in the state of California, and we tend to help the state create a scalable program to direct those funds right exactly where they want to spend them. I can imagine listeners asking what kinds of communities are viable for this sort of expansion of the CHIRP Locally Grown Power Initiative. Is it a certain, does it have to be the kind of communities you're working with so far? How would you describe them more generally? And then you know I'm going to ask you, would it work outside of California? Okay. First of all, if, if we're just imagining this with California's, as you said, legislative environment that's very positive for development like this, and you're a businessman, so you, can, you know that the numbers work. Will it work in other cities? What kinds of cities in California? And then 
eventually outside. Okay. Uh, first of all, let's start with the, um, the, the prescribed uh, legislative definition, uh, what a disadvantaged community uh, looks like. Um, the state of California is so serious about this, they spent time in creating something called the Cal Enviro Screen, and it's now on its version 3.0. So anyone can go on the internet and look up Cal Enviro Screen 3.0, and this map looks at every single census tract in the state and quantifies its environmental positive and negative impacts. And so there is already a definition of quote unquote disadvantaged communities or DACs as it's called in the, um, in, in the policy world uh, that will help direct monies from cap and trade and other programs directly into and be required to be spent in these disadvantaged communities. If you go on the Calavirus screen map, the, the, the bright red areas on the map are the highest negatively impacted environmental, from, from the environment perspective, areas in the state. And one of the reasons we're starting in Pomona is because it is at the 91 to 100 percentile highest negatively impacted areas in the state of California. So. We're going to cut our teeth in uh, Cal Enviro screen designated high impact areas, and we're going to help the state uh, direct some of its cap and trade money that has been earmarked. 25% of all cap and trade money in the state has been earmarked to be spent on DACs. And the revenue from that over the next eight years, uh, 10 years, is projected to be $8 billion. That's that an, one pile of money from the state that needs yeah. to be directed and they know that local programs like this are the best way to see the most effect of those dollars be spent. Mm -hmm. um, so that means that there's a kind of economic support for this that if it had to be, couldn't happen if you needed to find independent capital in hundreds of millions of dollars level to do it. It kickstarts a process that once it gets going is not only self-sustaining, but feeds increasing amounts of money into the local community in ways it stays in the local community. Correct. So it sounds like what you need is a sort of proof of concept. If four years from now, it's just clear from the data that this is really working in Pomona, then there's huge opportunity to replicate it, probably with similar success, elsewhere in California. That's what I'm hearing so far. Oh, yes, correct. In fact, we hope to have three factories in process by the end of next year. <laughs> I'm way too uh, under-ambitious for you. You know, that's the difference from the, the guys in the private sector and the educational sector. <laughs> we, 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 we are really serious about replication. And you're, you're right. The state in California is sensitized and, um, and serious and has put their money where their mouth is and where their heart is, really, to help kickstart this program. What we, we've done the regional uh, input-output models for uh, economic analysis of uh, the first phase of this, which is the first 6,000 households. This program will uh, be revenue neutral from day one, from the day the first solar system is put up through the taxes that are generated by that redirected disposable personal income. And it will, the, uh, the first $25 million project uh, will pay for itself in under four years back to the state in terms of revenue expansion through uh, the tax base. And it will, it will more than double that initial 25 million spent 
in under 10 years. So this is the self-regenerating economic model using renewable energy, mitigating greenhouse gases, but spent in a way that is self-sustaining. So it's sustainable economics as well as sustainable energy. Is that what this technical term that you use means, regenerative economies? Yes. So I really want to make sure that the listeners have a sense. It's using green initiative, the things that our planet needs, in ways that produce benefits in a local economy, like a, like a city with a high percentage of lower middle or lower income individuals and family units, in ways where that causes the economy and therefore the environment, the whole the over social and city environment, to improve for these people, as well as having positive effects on the, the global environment. That's absolutely correct. It's a very well-known kind of principle uh, inside local cities that if you spend $100 at a local coffee shop owned by a local business owner who lives in that community, as compared to, um, let's say, a, a chain coffee establishment, three times the amount of money that you spend in that local coffee shop will stay in the community. And so we've just gotten used to this uh, globalization and multinationalization of businesses and um, become a little bit uh, naive and numb to what their presence in our communities is actually doing to our communities from an economic, a, a macroeconomic perspective. So we are re-envisioning um, each one of these factories as a locally owned business. It's a micro factory. We're getting away from the billion dollar lights out factory in China to create solar panels. And we're designing micro factories that can be installed and owned and operated on a nonprofit basis in each community, employing local people to create the panels and employing local people to distribute and install those panels okay. for the benefit of the energy reduction of their neighbors. Okay. It's beautiful. All right. Let me make you work in the last few minutes of our podcast. And I think probably make uh, myself and the listeners work as well to help us see how these principles might be utilized in contexts outside of home energy and in contexts well outside of California or even North America. So let's start with home residences and the, their carbon impact on the planet. Clearly, gains in efficiency are important for the planet. Can one make that kind of retrofitting work in contexts without the sort of economic support and legislative support that California offers? Is this a generalizable principle on a huge scale? Help us see the vision that I think is behind your work. Uh, well, getting back to uh, Ed Mazaria, uh, who inspired me in 2003, Ed has continued a global push toward making sure that the entire world's design and construction professionals consider energy from the very first design meeting. Uh, because every year we are tearing down and rebuilding billions of square feet of buildings. And every new square foot of building that gets built right now can be energy efficient and in fact energy positive. 
we have now learned to be able to build buildings that generate more energy than they use year over year and keep the occupants dramatically more comfortable going into a harsher climate. Because we're not only talking about uh, mitigation here, but we're talking about adaptation to a very stressful climate, no matter what we do in terms of uh, greenhouse gases. So uh, in the, the building sector idea is extrapolatable and scalable to the entire world. And the community engagement model is as well. We need to engage communities and have them understand the, the benefits, the power and benefits of energy efficiency and renewable energy and have them be able to scale this as rapidly as possible because we really do not have time to mess around anymore. So as leaders uh, in this movement, we started off trying to communicate to people vocabulary and principles and concepts. And we're well beyond that now. Uh, the average person on the street understands those principles and in fact has a fairly sophisticated understanding of uh, the trajectory that we're on and why we're on it and how dangerous it is. They just don't know quite what to do. They are now motivated to do something, but as leaders, it behooves us to try and create projects like this that actually show people what the next steps are. And we're, what we're trying to do is create a project, and we're hoping that other people create their own, that can engage hundreds and hundreds of volunteers in this effort and give them specific tasks so that they can help us uh, make real significant differences in these four sectors that we're focused on. I'm imagining that ECOCIV invites together 300 leaders from communities around the world um, and invites you to come in as a keynote speaker. They're talking about various forms of regenerative economics uh, for their local economies. And some are housing and energy, but others are in other sectors altogether. And person after person stands up and says, Devin, um, it's incredible what's happening. You now have built 20 factories and this idea really is spreading across California and the United States. Um, what's so hard for us is that these are systemic changes. We don't know how to get started because it involves fundraising and technology and community support and regional support and all these different pieces together. How does one get started in an idea maybe completely outside your own, how does one get started when all the various systems are so intricately linked together? What's step one when you're talking about systemic change? So change always starts with a dream or an idea. So uh, if a city is serious about this, um, the basic principle is the city needs to start thinking uh, as a business and start acting like an entrepreneur with a focus on creating an ecological civilization. That's the scrim through which we need to make all of our decisions. And so as an operating principle, if we realize that we have to make a shift from thinking about just letting some venture capitalist or some multinational corporation come in and solve our problems, or selling our intellectual property to the highest bidder to take all of our ideas offshore, we have to start with the first principle that we really can do this ourselves if we focus on local control. 
there are a lot of people around the country focused on the idea of the new localism. And it doesn't take much as an idea. Say, for example, in the city of Pomona, they're already reaching out to anchor businesses like the major hospitals and the major uh, universities, Cal Poly Pomona, uh, who spend billions of dollars in purchasing. And most of those purchases are done through lowest cost. What happens if those purchasing agents decided that their criteria was buying local first? They could get three times the purchasing power in their local community by buying paper from a local manufacturer, even if that paper costs twice as much as paper from China. Because those dollars would circulate multiple times in the local economy. So I think, as always, we start with an idea, and then you, you take that idea to the decision makers, and you create a, a group of people that are strategically invested in that local community. And then, for example, what we can do uh, in terms of our organization is they can invite a locally grown power factory into their community, and we can help teach those principles. Because we're not only going to create our own factory, but over time, we will then attract other businesses from whom we can purchase the materials for our factory, thereby kind of multiplying the, the impact. And we can internet and interface with other businesses in completely different industries who want to um, deploy the same model. Beautiful. That directly answers the question, how does one see the system and what is that thing that gets one launched into it in the first place? It's exciting to see somebody has a vision and finds others who are invested in the community. That was the word that jumped out at me. Mm. And who are willing to say, let's try out this principle, the three times principle, and see whether we can make it work. Devin, I always end the podcast by asking an entrepreneur in the realm of thought or policy or business, what is it that brings you hope? What, what gets you up in the morning? What keeps you from getting discouraged as you fight? I know something about the battles you've had to fight to, to get to the breakthrough that you've had in these last couple of months. What is that thing inside? What is that worldview? I don't know what it is that keeps you pouring 18 hours a day into, into growing uh, locally grown power nationwide. I think two things, uh, and they both have to do with uh, people. And that is that over the last 15 years that I've been thinking about this stuff, uh, I have seen a zeitgeist change on the street in the awareness of millions of people. I mean, I, I interact with thousands of people in my travels. And the level of conversation, like we were discussing before, has grown tremendously. And the, uh, the desire of so many people, I would say it, the large portion of our population is heartfelt in their wish to help uh, create something new. I, I've had experience uh, working with just here locally in the Claremont Colleges. If we put out a notice uh, to get volunteers, we'll, ha we'll have 150 people sign up in a week. Uh, and we will deploy those volunteers, um, and they, they will work really hard at creating a new civilization. And I guess the, then the other, the other thing that gives me hope is uh, the individuals uh, that just show up. I, I call them, um, you know, our angels that just show up and say, hey, 
that one of one of those angels is Kent Kernahan, the inventor, who came up to me one day after a lecture I was giving uh, to Sierra Club and the League of Women Voters down in San Juan Capistrano five years ago. And he came up to me after that uh, that presentation and said, uh, "We should we should talk." And we formed a very deep friendship from that. And I think it's those relationships with people like you, Philip, and John Cobb, and uh, my interns, and my new staff. And we've got 50 people working in, I think, 15 different committees now, all volunteer from around the state to help bring this together. And these are all our chirp angels that have just shown up uh, to help. And uh, uh, that's just, for me, that's uh, so inspiring and it gets me up every day and it lets me know that uh, we really we really do have a chance uh, to make a big dent uh, in this problem and to do it and to do it quickly. My guest today has been Devin Hartman, founder of Terp Locally Grown Power, involved now in building the first factory in the Claremont Pomona area with goals of, I think you said, three by the end of 2020. And from what uh, the track record is, and I'm hearing, your odds of making that and multiplying that many, many times beyond are, are pretty good. Devin, we all wish you the best in this project, and um, we hope you will agree to be a keynote speaker as entrepreneurs from around the world meet together to talk about regenerative economies in the future. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you, Philip, for this time and for your support, all your support over the years. Take care. Bye. -bye.